three mornings a week, we meet before breakfast for an early morning run. We spend most of our time planning and reflecting on what's happening in our classrooms. This has become our favorite professional development. So we figured, why not share these moments with you? Welcome to Math Before Breakfast. This is episode 87. I'm Tracy Prophet. I'm Ruth Urquiaga. And I'm Jay Prophet. And we are thrilled to have a special guest with us today. Um, we are welcoming Dr. Teresa Wills. Welcome. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And we are, we just so, this is very exciting for us. So um, Dr. Wills is the author of Teaching Math at a Distance, a Practical Guide to Rich Remote Instruction. I also know she is a college professor and just an all-around expert on teaching math online. And we were uh, lucky enough that Corin. Corwin reached out to us, the publisher, and um, offered to send us both a copy of it. And that was super cool. So thanks for that. Um, they sent us a copy and read it. And I just, before we even start, I need to say I've used so much already from and from this book. Um, found myself like texting coworkers, hey, you need this part. Because it, it was like dealing with exactly the kind of thing that we've been talking about in the conversations that we were having. So I'm really excited to talk more about the the book and get to know you some more. Um, so this is going to be great. So we'll let you go ahead and just tell us a little about your experience as a math student and then what roles you've held in education um, up until where you, where you are now. <coughs> yeah, hi. So um, my role as a student is kind of interesting because I'm a very untrusting mathematician. Um, I've never really trusted formulas and rules. I kind of don't have the greatest memory. Um, instead, I've always been interested in the why does something work. Um, and so, you know, um, whether it, that's in high school math and I'm learning the distance formula and I can't keep straight where the X's and Y's and the minuses go, but I can understand how it works, then I can just rederive it whenever I need it. Um, and the same kind of basic level, it's why I still count on my fingers, even simple addition. Um, and I don't even know half my multiplication facts, um, but I'm really quick at getting them. You'll just see me uh, use my fingers. You'll see me thinking like, oh, wait, what's seven times five? Add another group of seven. Okay, I'm here now. Um, and it wasn't until actually um, my upper levels proofs classes in my math major that I realized that actually this is so necessary in mathematics that you really think about why you can rederive it and you don't just trust somebody who created a formula before. And then when I moved into math ed, I started noticing that that is fundamentally part of pedagogy is knowing the why behind it. So then when I started teaching, I was a secondary teacher for years. Um, I you know, would talk about the Pythagorean theorem but not in reference to right angles. I would talk about it in reference to acute or obtuse and like the way that that would work. Um, we might have remembered this term FOIL in algebra. And I instead just said, make sure you got all of your possibilities. Um, and then, you know, um, thinking uh, as I continued um, my work, I wasn't only a middle school teacher, I was also um, a middle school math coach, a technology coach for a little while, and an elementary math coach. So pretty much at this point, I've taught math to kids every grade from preschool all the way through high school geometry. That's awesome. So you're, you're I think that certainly helps in the writing of this book to kind of know a little bit about all the levels. That's all, it's great. So I'm really interested in that you said you 
were always a student like that, but then you became a math major. Did you go to college and study math and then get a teacher licensure? I did. I actually started off in computer science, which kind of goes back into my, I always want to know every little step of like why something works and how it works um, and the way you can modify and change it when one thing changes. Um, But computer science wasn't for me. I obviously have an interest in technology and computers, but um, the formal computer science wasn't for me. I was doing well in math at the time. Uh, So I did major in mathematics. And then um, at Virginia Tech, where I uh, got my undergrad, they have a concentration for education. And um, that led me to be a secondary math teacher. That's really cool. That just is more confirmation that when a student can learn the why, they can own it and know that they're a good math student, even if they count on their fingers or even if they don't memorize their facts and their formulas. So that's pretty awesome. So Tracy mentioned that we were given the opportunity to read your book. And as we're reading it in the middle of a pandemic, your first thought is, wow, you wrote this book really fast because we were just in it and now here it is. But as you read it, obviously this has been a long process for you. So we're kind of curious about your writing process and how, how it came to be. Yeah, in terms of the writing process, um, you know, I definitely have been writing about synchronous online learning, but it wasn't really accepted by a lot of people. They didn't understand. Why don't you just talk about asynchronous where you do it at your own pace or put it in person? Like, why would you do this other route? Um, and uh, so in March of 2019, when schools in America were closing down the buildings, but still instructing kids online, I started offering free PD every single day where I would just have any teachers who wanted to learn something. They came, we learned some things. But what was really useful is I wrote down a lot of questions um, and there were plenty of questions. And I started uh, writing up the answers to them. So when Erin Null from Corwin approached me about writing the book, I already had a lot of content and teacher questions and answers right there. Um, so as I kept offering the PDs, more teachers would come, ask more questions. I'd write down more situations. And, um, you know, they would also tell me their experiences that happened in the classroom. Hey, I just tried this and here's what happened. And then I thought, oh. Well, maybe I should have told you that like gradual release would have been a really good, useful thing here. So um, it was a lot through the question and answer that uh, it became really clear what each kind of thought is. And then those became the chapters. I think it totally reads like that, you know, like it's it's answering the questions that people want to know. So that's cool to see how it developed. Um, So you kind of alluded to this, but. Tell us, one of the things I really liked about it um, were all the strategy chapters, like how to, you know, how you had different chapters for, well, I probably should, hold on, let me just flip right there. Um, The facilitating, like building strong communities, promoting student thinking, um, math routines, that kind of thing. And I liked how in each one you had the strategy and then you had a vignette to go with it, sort of walking through what it exactly what it sounded like. And then also tons of pictures they are very specific of what's happening. So we just were curious about how those came together. How did you create those? Gosh, those vignettes are just such an entanglement of some personal experiences, 
observations that I saw in classes. I'm constantly in K-12 classrooms, um, seeing different things that are happening and retelling the stories. Sometimes they are actual teacher questions. Sometimes they send me a snippet. This is what my class did. What do I do now? Um, <laughs> and then oftentimes they're really wonderful successes that teachers tell me. Um, and so when they tell me a success, I'll be a math coach and I'll say, why do you think that was so successful? And they'll start to say a couple things and I'll ask them some more, well, why was that important? Uh, would you do that again next time? How did that really uh, allow students to talk more? Um, and it was a lot of their voice in those vignettes. So one of the things that we were both interested in is your small groups. I have um, I'm back in the classroom socially distanced, and so I'm not doing virtual teaching, but Tracy's school is doing a combination of both and putting students in small groups. That wasn't something that we were, we, I should say, that's something we were asked not to do, like make sure you have an adult in the room. And so what do we say to those administrators who aren't comfortable with those students that are in the breakout room without a teacher? Yeah, uh, that situation really reminds me of so many times in education where we will put up restrictions for good reason, um, and that's to protect students. But sometimes we don't always see all the impact of those restrictions. Um, and I'll take you back to one uh, that happened to me when I was teaching seventh grade. I had 30 desks in my classroom, all in a nice little even line. And I wanted to replace this with big circular tables. Well, at the time, everyone was very concerned for me saying, you know, you don't want to do that and giving me a whole laundry list of reasons why. But I said, you know what, I think if I build the right routines and I make sure that we practice how to have our own space, things like that, that this will actually be really nice. And math won't have to be just them copying notes. They'll be able to communicate with each other. So I got the go ahead. Um, and of course, like it was wonderful and it changed, um, you know, my thinking of math. Um, when you're doing breakout rooms in online, you're likely to say, oh, no, I'm not so sure about this yet. Um, but then I like to think about, well, why are we unsure? Why don't we want to provide that experience for students when we know that the collaboration is one of the ways that students can talk about mathematics and, um, you know, unpack it? And so what I'm finding out is that it's not the breakout rooms that's the problem. It's the routines and the um, ways of checking in with your students. So in other words, there needs to be some kind of formulaic gradual release on how you put students in breakout rooms. So my formula, I usually start out with just pair share, two minutes, two kids, two really, really, really low stakes questions because I'm not really checking in for, you know, how deep is your mathematics? I'm like, do you know how to use the microphone? Um, are you comfortable? Can you be kind to each other? Mm -hmm. um, and do you understand my safety protocol? Once we're past there, um, once I can tell administrators, hey, look, I've made a running record of all my students and I can tell that they know the safety protocol, then I'm ready to move into larger groups. So maybe four kids for 10 minutes and we do a lower stakes math type question. But this time I'm checking for, you know, do they give each other equitable talk time? Do they value collaboration or are they just trying to do it all themselves? Are they comfort with the technology? And I have a problem solving oath that's really important in all my classes. And, you know, are they actually, um, you know, following the problem solving oath? So when administrators hear that there is a clear, um, you know, 
recorded record of when students do something in this gradual release. What they're hearing is, oh, it's very purposeful. You know what to do when students, you know, are doing something they're not supposed to do. Well, you move back a phase and you practice that phase. And then when they're able to do it, you can implement it more. It's basically what every kindergarten teacher has taught me in education. If you want kids to walk down the hall, you gotta teach it. Mm -hmm. And you know, if they're not doing it right, you go back and you practice it again. And then when we've mastered walking down the hall, we can do the next step. <laughs> okay, so you said problem solving oath. I'm really interested in what that is. <laughs> I feel sure. like I might need it. Um, let me get it up and I'll read it exactly as is. Oh, here, I think I've got a sticker around here. I'll send these um, to you also. I've got little like water bottle stickers. So I see that Tracy's got quite a few yes. on, uh, oh, yeah. on her computer. Um, so the oath, the problem solving oath is something that I put up. The students say it to themselves as I say it out loud. And then they're always able to type their name in the chat box as a way of publicly stating that, yes, I'm going to follow this oath. And it goes like this. I, Teresa, promise to try my best. I will make sense of patterns and numbers. I will use manipulatives and drawings. I will make mistakes. I will ask questions. I will listen to other ideas. I will stay engaged by always trying to find another solution or representation. I am a problem solver. I make the world a better place. I like and that. And then at that point, they type their name in the chat box if they want to like publicly say, yes, I'm willing to do this today. When I see 25 names pop in the chat box, because kids always want to show that they're doing something good. And I'm like, great, all 25 of you are at your computer ready for the directions. Here's the task. Um, so those, that's something that's very important to me, both for classroom management and making good mathematicians. Did you use that ever in a face-to-face -face class? I've used this oath for... So did they About sign their name on paper or what did you, how did you incorporate it there? Anyone who wanted to was allowed to stand up. They could use inflection in their voice. They could use a silly voice. They could talk like the Queen of England. Um, they can put on any accent they want. Um, but we all said it together. And even okay. if they wanted to, especially some of my middle schoolers, you could whisper it quietly into your hand as long as they were saying it. Okay. I love and that. you're going to send that to me so I can incorporate mm -hmm. that because we are headed into a place where I need lots of people who are willing to <laughs> take that. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go back and, and about the like setting up the norms in the small groups. I've been having conversations with a particular teacher who wants to, to use small groups and doesn't feel like they have the permission yet. Um, and so I feel like reading this and hearing your all the norms and structures that you set up I think could let this teacher be better like almost sell it a little better you know I, this is the plan I want to use here's how I'm going to do it I've already thought through all these particular things I think that that would help the this person just sell the idea so thanks Administrators want to hear the wonderful plans and structures that teachers have in place. Um, administrators are teachers too, and they know that that is so important. So the idea of opening breakout rooms with no structure, of course, sounds completely insane. Yeah. But as soon as you put that structure down in those routines, it's not only manageable, it is so much better. Yep. Hmm. So tell us a little bit about dynamic math talk. You, 
mentioned it in your book on page 174, and I'm super excited to hear about it. Dynamic Math Talk is something that I've been um, constantly interested in since I first started teaching online uh, using Google Slides for the most part, because what I was seeing is during the math conversation, what was happening was different than what was happening in my face-to-face classes. And so when I say face-to-face to uh, virtual, what I mean is uh, if I'm working with teachers, I would teach one section face-to-face and one section online with a 10 minute break in between it. So it's not enough to change up my lesson. With a fifth grade class, I would do one in the classroom and then I would go off to my math coach office and we would all be on the computers and kind of working at it that way. Um, so, um, you know, in that online class, what I found is during the math talk, more people were showing me what they know. And it was because things were dynamic. In other words, they could move and change in real time. So in a face-to-face class, a student might show their work on a sheet of paper and, um, you know, kind of explain, oh, over here, over here, over here, as they're showing you what they did. But that's them showing you. And even with great questioning, it is still showing. So when we move it to online and we use Google Slides, at any moment, the teacher could say, great point, Tracy. Let's see if everyone else can see that again. So I take slide eight and I make 20 duplicates of it. And I say, everyone go on your own slide, type your name on it and exactly where you see this y-intercept or where you see this growing by two or you know whatever uh, the question was. Now all of your students are writing in real time. You can see that and check for understanding and then you can bring in more questions. Another thing that I've done is sometimes I'll put copies of you know 25 arrows on a slide point to anywhere that you saw a rate of change. And those arrows are moving all over to all the different representations. And then I can click on an arrow. Hey, whose is this? Why did you say this was a rate of change? Um, And then one of my favorite ways of doing dynamic math talk is finding a table that another student has created. I take that table and I copy it mid uh, uh, writing it up. So they might only have uh, four cells filled in and I copy and I save it for later. And then during the math talk, I'll say, you know, Jared over here did this great table and I copied the unfinished version. Everyone take a cell and add a number in it. Let's see if we're all on the same page. Let's see if we can um, replicate this. And then Jared can explain why, you know, what we wrote was correct. So it's moving things around. It's everybody interacting in real time. That's really cool. Teresa, I had a question about the, um, you were talking about, working with your students in Google Slides and you had talked about putting something on this, uh, putting a bunch of little arrows and they move the arrows to point at something. When you do that, is everybody looking at their own Google Slide? Well, it's, it's one slide, but are they all working on it on their own version or are you sharing your screen so they can see what you're doing or both? That is a really good question. Uh, And I think if we look at those math teaching practices, the one where we're talking about uh, eliciting and using student work uh, as, you know, evidence, um, one thing that I've learned to do is completely release ownership of my slides. They get full editing rights. 
Now that doesn't mean I don't have a copy right next to it in case something happens, but it does mean that we are all seeing the same document change in real time. So, you know, if Ruth moves an arrow, I see it on my screen. If Tracy moves an arrow, I see it on my screen. If someone makes 20 duplicate copies, I see all 20 as well. So we do use certain norms about how we know whose is whose space. We use color, people typing their names on the slide. But the idea is that um, everyone sees it in real time, everyone can edit it, and everyone is an owner of the learning. I love how the one of the other things that I read often was one of the norms of um, if you're going to change somebody else's work, you have to make a copy of it first and then make a change to it. I thought that was such a good practice to have in there. That's cool. It's such a simple one that honors their work and celebrates like you did something really cool. Now I want to change it um, without actually kind of harming their work or, or, you know, modifying it right there. And control D is an amazing little shortcut. <laughs> yes, for sure. All right. Um, one of the other things that I noticed was how purposeful the representation was in your book. I'm, I'm, I'm certain it was purposeful. Um, for example, I, why are you laughing at me already? Yeah. <laughs> I, um, one of the things that I, both of these things I can't say I'd ever seen in another book um, that wasn't a, about the topic. So one was um, mentioning a twice exceptional student, which in case you're not familiar with that, it means a student that um, is has giftedness and then also a special need in some way. Um, I've never seen that outside of a book about giftedness. And then um, also the, it's we, we've discussed this, it's called a honorific, no, we decided, mix, okay, or Mr., Ms., did we decide that was an honorific? Is that the right term? I don't know. Okay, well, we'll go with yes, it is. <laughs> anyway, so that is the honorific for a person who is non-binary, and I had never, I'd heard about it, but I'd never seen it in a book um, to talk about it, and that one of the teachers is referred to with they, them pronouns, and I just thought that was so cool. So talk to us a little about those decisions, and then is there any other um representation things that we maybe didn't see. Yeah, so this was very purposeful um, in a way of representing all of the real teachers that are out there. Um, and so, you know, we have twice exceptional students all the time, um, but it might be more natural for us to think of a twice exceptional student as either gifted or a student with um, special education services and not see them as the whole person. And so that's something that's really near and dear to my heart. I wanna make sure that people see students as the whole student. And sometimes those titles can help us to see um, you know, two sides. Um, in terms of using non-binary pronouns and titles such as mix, uh, I think it's important that we show that, you know teachers of every type are out there. Um, and when I read a book and I see a term that I'm not familiar with, I usually pause what I'm doing, take out my phone, Google it real quick. And I'll say, oh, I'll learn something new today. Um, and I think that when we are making sure that uh, representation is there, uh, it's our duty as a writer to make sure that we are you know, not excluding people and that they're in there so that other people who've never heard of the term takes out their phone and learns something new. Um, if it happens enough, then it just becomes kind of part of the stuff that we read. And, um, you know, our expectations of, you know, that is the, that is our world. It's, it's filled with all kinds of people. And uh, I want to be represented as much as anybody else. Awesome. Thank you. So one of the things that I noticed, too, and this is probably just, but when 
um, Twitter first picked up the whole online school and I follow all of these math teachers on Twitter, I had never ever thought of what might happen if I made a child turn their camera on who didn't want to. It just never crossed my mind. Like if I had had a conversation and someone had said, well, what if they don't want to show you their background? I would have said, oh yeah, but it wasn't something I thought about. And so I feel like a lot of teachers, maybe even now are like, in order to be in class, you have to turn on your camera. And it's in your book, which was written um, pre-COVID. So it really kind of took me like, I wonder if people read your book or people got that from you. Like just stop and think about what that might mean for a student in that setting. Well, I think the interesting thing about where my research comes from, it's 10 years in the making. So 10 years ago, I started using this little program called Illuminate Live, and I believe they had a way that you could turn on your video. But everyone that I was teaching, uh, which were other teachers all across Virginia, our Internet just was not meant for that at the time. Uh, So we didn't use the cameras. Um, Also, I have a background in video gaming. And I don't know if you all know a lot uh, about video games, but the the game itself is going to take up your entire real estate, your entire screen, because that's the most important part. And we can hear everyone, but we don't need to see their faces moving around. So I had a lot of experience in being able to build relationships and connect without seeing the face. And as a matter of fact, even my classes uh, today um, or, you know, at the beginning of when COVID started, um, I didn't even think about asking them to turn on the camera. But I had to go out and buy a camera for my computer because other people were using Zoom and wanted to use their cameras. So I was like, <laughs> okay, like, I'll put one up. Um, and so I think that says a lot that it's not that we're trying to go away from the camera, but that it just wasn't ever essential. Sure, it can be nice. It just isn't essential. And if you consider about all the backgrounds of kids, literal backgrounds and, you know, um, where they're coming from, they might not want to be spending an hour getting ready that morning. They might be self-conscious about their image. They might be self-conscious about their home. They might actually be better as students if they're not constantly performing. And there's a lot of reasons why we don't use cameras, um, but mainly Google Slides are the real estate in the same way video games are the real estate. I want to see the math, and that's what's important to me. I I was just um, I just recently did a like a one on one tutoring with a kid, and he didn't have his camera on when he when like when we started. And I had this moment of, do I ask him? And I was like, nah. I'm, I was actually kind of modeling for another teacher, and I decided, you know, I was going to model. It doesn't matter. And you're right. It didn't make any difference at all in the course. I mean, we were on for an hour and I never saw him. Um, our, our camera was on, but it, it really just didn't make any difference. Um, he, and, and it was cool. Like he would, I mean, they've done this for so long now that they know what to do. He would ask me to repeat it if he couldn't hear me, you know, he, and not just sort of sit there and wait for the next thing. Um, so it was great. This was a fourth grader. Yeah. I think that there's a lot of visual and nonverbal cues that 
we as teachers do in the face-to-face classroom all the time. We know when a student is about to have a meltdown or when they're so excited they're going to jump out of their seat. Um, And we can see those nonverbal cues. And so when you're working online, you still need to look for those cues, whether that's everyone move uh, an emoji on your Google slide. Let me know how you're feeling about this. you're, You're still getting that same kind of signal as you would, but you need to think about it a little differently. I think even, even, and, and I work in higher ed and, you know, the same things with instructors having to teach online and having to teach synchronously and, and they are even more used to just being able to look out over the classroom and see everybody's face and see, are they paying attention? Are they, you know, and seeing that engagement. And that's one of the most common things I hear as well is how do I know they're paying attention? You know, if they're not going to turn their cameras on and, and I, you know, try to get them to, try, you know, try group work, try having them answer, you know, I didn't even think about moving things on the, on the <laughs> slide like that, but, you know, in, engaging them other ways and, and working with them or, or splitting them up into group, you know, keep them, keep them doing stuff. I mean, put something in the chat. Yeah. Any of those. Yep. So I have, feel like I have so much to take from your book because I'm in the sixth grade math class. Even today I was like, Twitter, Mitt Boss, comparing fractions, and Therese, Dr. Therese Wells is the first one to pop up with <laughs> something you posted years ago. But I'm interested in the successes that someone who's read your book or someone who's done something from your book has been able to share with you. What's your favorite one? My favorite ones are always ones that include math tasks. Um, where students have finally been able to show all their representations. Like kids want a voice. That's why they're constantly like uh, spamming the chat box with emojis because they want to have a voice in your class. It's why they're so silly and goofy. Um, And so if we can turn that into how many representations can you come up with for this situation? We might provide some virtual manipulatives, but we don't make them use them. And we just kind of, here, here's your sample. Um, and then they start to create all of these different uh, representations. What that does for the teacher is allows them to kind of relax a little bit and say, wow, I have plenty to choose from for my discussion. Um, and, you know, the kids get to say things. And I've heard of these from kindergarten to Calc. I think my favorite one is the, the Calc teacher who is like, I should have just asked my students to post a picture of what they're drawing on their paper up at the uh, the Google slide, or some people did showing it on Zoom, because I finally got to see what they were doing. Um, and I've had kindergarten teachers saying, I want to do the little bears where you do like an A, B, A, B pattern with these little teddy bears, but we did it online. And I let the kids make their own patterns and they came up with so many more than are even our standards. Um, and so I think those are my two favorite one, because mm-hmm. it shows just how, how pedagogically sound it is that it works in kindergarten all the way through Calc. Um, but it also showcases the power of representations in math. That's great. Ruth and I, we've, we've been having a lot of conversations about virtual manipulatives and, and how it's, I'm, I'm only doing tutoring. I'm not doing like whole class very often, but I'm doing tutoring one-on-one and I just keep saying like, listen to what happened when we, when we pulled this out and tried this. And I'm just over and over like impressed with what my little guy can figure out when we use manipulatives. 
Um, I have to go back to something else you said, which is spamming the chat box. Jay and I just had this conversation recently about how he'll be in meetings, which is <laughs> it's not the same as like yeah, a class, a but he's like, the people just keep putting comments in the chat box. And, you know, he was like, it's like you're talking in the middle of class. And I was like, well, I think that Dr. Wills would think something different. And I like how you, and I've been in a meeting before, too, where you've even said like, I don't care how you answer. You can say it out loud. You can put it on the doc. You can put it in the chat. And I just, that's a lot to manage as the teacher. But I like your, I, I like the view of like, oh, well, they're just participating. Yeah, but they weren't participating. It was like they're having a conversation about something else. <laughs> At least you know they're there. They're, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Any, any, any thoughts of, any thoughts for Jay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I can give you some thoughts that are specific for like teacher development. So if you're doing a PD or you're working in, um, you know, higher education, I typically always have people um, use two modalities for two very different reasons. So if we're talking about representations in math and someone's explaining, I use this cube to be one and this cube to be five in the chat box, everyone who's participating in that PD or teachers in that class are talking about pedagogy moves. So I just saw communication there. I just saw a really great question there. Um, oh, I like what you said, Tracy, about your questioning. I wonder if you could also ask this question. So there's really two things happening at once. Now, why on earth do I do that? Isn't that overloaded? Because people are already doing two things at once. They've got their Amazon shopping open over here and their Zoom over here. Mm -hmm. So when you give them two things to do, it kind of overloads them and it makes it so that those are the two that they're doing. Um, kids really, really like this. They are like the best little multitaskers. Um, but sometimes just being able to um, you know, monitor both of those things can be overwhelming for teachers at first. So I do a lot of that instruction through PD and uh, teacher leadership classes. I have seen, and I guess the first time I saw it come up was at, um, at conferences, they would have a specific, um, you know, not a chat room, but it's not one that long ago, but something set up <laughs> for like back channel is what they called it, where there was that, that exact thing, conversation going on, people were texting or, or typing, you know, commenting about, uh, commenting about, I guess nowadays that could almost be, you know, uh, a, a bunch of tweets with the same hashtag or, so, you know, something, something where they were, they were, there was some communication back and forth. Sometimes it's just, oh, that was a great idea. You know, I've seen that before, but I guess in, it was always, it never, um, it was something that you, you chose to be a part of. And cause definitely some people are, are doing two things, but it wasn't like on a big screen right beside the, the speaker's head. And in this specific case, the speaker kept getting distracted. Um, and it was like, oh, well, thank you. Cause he, you know, he and his wife just had a baby. So people were saying, congratulations on your baby. And he kept <laughs> stop saying, oh, thank you. You know, you know, and, and it was like, just stop so he can finish his talk. <laughs> <laughs> There's definitely certain norms and rules that um, you wanna make sure you have in place for the airspace, which mm -hmm. is what I call the audio, uh, the chat box, um, the emotions, uh, you know, uh, some of them let you react to, you know, go faster, go slower, put a heart up and more. And I go back to the video game community. If you ever watch these kids play, whether it's Roblox or Minecraft or World of Warcraft, whatever it is, there are multiple chat boxes happening. One color is whole group. One is a guild. The, the airspace is for a certain thing. And these communities already have it figured out. They yeah. know the norms about how you do a certain thing, how you ignore something. And so us as teachers, we're just learning this now. But I think we have a great direction to look at um, and see, you know, what are the norms that they do in terms of chat? 
I love that. I love the the idea of overloading them on purpose. <laughs> Keeping cool. them from yeah. trying to do that third thing. Yep. Um, so we are curious what you are reading or listening to or watching now. We've been reading your book. What are what are you learning about? Yeah, I happen to be reading two books that go hand in hand so perfectly right now. Um, I'm in a book study that um, I'm actually listening to Abram Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And I am using Audible for that. I listen to a lot of books. And I'm also reading uh, High School Mathematics Lessons to Explore, Understand, and Respond to Social Injustice. Um, And it's a really good dual read. Because with the math lessons, I'm learning, I mean, they are very mathematically sound. They bring up rich math questions. You'll do an exploration on probability, uh, and you'll discover that the prison populations in America are comprised of 40% white, 40% black populations. And you might think, hey, 40-40. But when you look at the proportion of white and black populations in the U.S., you realize just how disproportionate that is. So this book gets into the mathematics and it is good math. And then I've got Ibram Kendi's book um, that's kind of bringing out the why. What are some of the reasons that this is happening? How do we take action and how do we respond to this in our culture? And uh, so they're a great dual read. I'm learning a lot uh, and exposing other people to some really great math. That's cool. Reading those two at the same time. I like that. So we always kind of end with, what else do you want to tell us? Because we make up these questions and then, I don't know, like I'm just sitting here learning so much from you. So I want to just say, like, keep talking. Tell us more. (laughs) So I do keep a website. It's TeresaWills.com. And I try to keep as many free resources, recordings, um, everything available to teachers they're editable. So, you know, someone might have a really nice worksheet page, but if you can't edit it, it might not always apply to you. All my templates are editable and they're also very blank and they're blank on purpose. So they're very kind of like they're skilled text boxes where they go and some images around it that get kids to think, but their thinking is what goes on the slide, not mine. Uh, so it's a beautiful array of blankness. And uh, so those are in the templates. I also have resources for the book on my website. So if you're interested in doing a book study, for example, I've got slideshow presentations that walk you through actually trying out everything that's in the book. So if you're like, hey, let's try this classroom community one, you can do it right there in Zoom, oh, wow. in Google Slides with uh, with the, everybody else, and everything's editable. Um, and then the other thing that I do is every Saturday I host Mather Days, which is a free professional development for teachers, whoever wants to come. And I model a one hour math block, do a little community building, a routine in a rich task. And I try to showcase other established math routines and rich tasks that teachers are familiar with. Uh, so it's I'm not creating anything new. What I'm doing is showing how you do a math talk or you do clothesline math or which one doesn't belong in an online space. So it's something familiar and you're just seeing how it goes online. The teachers participate with me and then they have a whole lesson that they can take and bring to their class. That's super cool. That's and I know stuff. a lot of those, you, do you record all of them and share them? They're all recording. At this point, I have about 35 uh, math lessons. Again, anything from primary grades up to secondary. 
uh, lots of things in there about fractions, proportional reasoning, and functions as we see them being like growing patterns in the third grade all the way up to slope-intercept form in algebra. We were we were trying to learn about, um, oh, the name escapes me, Prime Line. Is that the name of it? And we, we watched part of your um, math or day for that to try to figure that out. That was cool. And we uh, watched your son, like, figure out the prime line and just you in the background saying why do you think that well what do you think it else could it could be it was just fun to watch that whole thing and learn that app we podcasted about that not too long ago yeah and you know Ruth um what he wants to do when he grows up is what I think every kid his age wants to do they want to be a YouTube star so I was like okay you can be a YouTube star I'm gonna put my little camera up you can use my fancy mic and you know show us how a kid might explore this virtual manipulative and that video that you're referencing is all about like when kids explore virtual manipulative do we just let them go out and have fun or do we have like this scavenger hunt or do we have strict like you must do this, this and that. Um, and so it was just kind of showcasing what happens when you give something to a kid brand new. It's like, what do you notice? That's awesome. We've also been talking about that too, Ruth, like right. how your your students are sometimes reluctant to to try it and, you know, figure out what the buttons mean. I just did the prime factor circles on Mathagon and I don't know. I mean, I was, we had definitely some successes and then some things like, okay, let me give you a little bit of guidance because you have, you know that these multiply and you've dropped them on top of each other, but what else can you do? (laughs) So I need, I just, yeah, I usually start off with like a scavenger hunt. They get about 50 blank slides in a Google doc that's shared. And I say, go off. I have a new manipulative for you to try in 10 minutes. I want you to show me that you know how to do everything on this page. I don't say anything more than that. Um, And so, you know, they're trying to show me that they know how to use it. They're exploring it. They put a screenshot up and I'm like, look at all the kids. I don't have to teach us to. I just saved myself two hours. And um, they're kind of showing me that. And then sometimes they give me a little like art scale from like, I want to come to you with for office hours and explore this more to I'm ready to buddy up and teach somebody else. And they tell me their level of comfort. And then I use that for breakout rooms. That is cool. I love that idea. I just have to say that your templates are awesome. And even last night I found one. I, I feel like when I'm planning for either my little tutor buddy or um, leading online PD, which is the other way that I'm using this right now, um, for teachers or instructional assistants, um, I kind of like, okay, I know at this point I'm going to need some sort of interaction. Like up until this point, I'm going to be have talked enough. Now I've got to do something. And so I literally go to your site and just scroll to see like, what, <laughs> what interests me here yeah. and, and keep finding things that work. I used, um, we were today with instructional assistants, we were talk, we were using the math fact fluency book and trying to look at, um, how do kids add? How do they derive facts? And then we were moving into subtraction. And so kind of reviewing what we'd learned last time, I put up a, I think it was like six plus eight and just said, everybody take a box, which was kind of what you were talking about, like a place for everybody to put their stuff. And so everybody take a box and explain how you, how you could derive six plus eight. And it, it worked beautifully. There was lots, lots to, you know, lots to see. And then they could read each other's while they were waiting. And then I could kind of click on them and highlight them. I, 
I'm not nearly as fast as you are at like coloring things and pointing to things. You know, I wanted to like, oh, it'd be so good if I could quickly change the color, but I just, I couldn't go do it fast enough, but they got the point. <laughs> yeah, it's great when you give people space that they can own and say is theirs and they can write in. Um, they can write immediately. Some people are like, oh, just give it to me. I'm ready to type. And others are thinking, mm, I want to sit back and kind of read a little bit. And there are synthesizers. They're, um, you know, they're, they're the ones who read it and really kind of put stuff together. And so it's a, a nice way of honoring different types of people too. Yep. Um, okay. I have one more question. I don't know, Ruth, if you do, but my, just, are there any new templates that you've added recently that you want to highlight? Um, let's see. I've got been doing more videos recently. Um, so I am trying to get things that are big ideas out to people in videos. So I haven't made as many of those templates. Um, however, coming up, I do have a bunch for decimals because uh, I have a teacher who is starting a decimal unit and she wants to know like, hey, if I do everything kind of using decimal templates and giving students voice, what does it look like? And so uh, I've got a bunch coming out soon uh, this month, all on decimals. Awesome. Well, we'll That's look good for that. stuff. All right. So we usually end with some takeaways. So we'll give everybody a second to think about that. And Teresa, if you want to share a takeaway, and um, you're welcome to as well. Who's ready? They got one? I'm ready. Okay. Because I am going to TeresaWells.com <laughs> as I plan my fraction unit for next week. Um, and I'm excited to see what's there. I'm, well, life has just been crazy. So I have not even gone to your website. You and should totally. I'm excited to have something else to look at. You should totally say why, Ruth. Come on. What? You should totally say why life has been crazy. Do a little <laughs> plug for yourself. So I recently got hired to be an adjunct professor Woo-woo. at the local college. Congratulations. Yeah, and I was super excited. She said, would you like to teach a class this spring? And I'm like, spring, sure. Okay, well, that starts January 18th. And it was literally like a week before. <laughs> and I thought I was teaching K-8 wannabe teachers, and these are 9-12. So I have lots of experience in math, but I have want to be Spanish teachers and want to be English as a second language and want to be choral and art. So I have done so much learning, like national standards. My job is to teach them how to write a lesson plan, and they actually teach their first lesson for me. Um, And last night I was like, look, we are just going to do this together. We're going to open these assignments, and we're going to figure out what you don't know, and I'm going to find answers for it. And I don't know if you've ever had a professor like that, but that's how I'm going to have to be. And today I got a really nice email that just said, Professor Urquiaga, you might feel like you're really inept, but I think that you are doing a phenomenal job. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So I just wrote back and was like, your email is very timely and your encouragement is very appreciated. So. And your use of the word inept is great. (laughs) On point. (laughs) On point. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Who else wants to share a takeaway? Mine is I'm going to try to make better use of the chat box. Oh, yeah. You convinced him. Well done. (laughs) You know, and I I think it's – I don't try to, you know, stay away from it. But I I do want to see if I can make a better use of it instead of just 
little things popping in there every now and then. And then maybe the more little things are popping up, people won't be distracted by them as much if they're used to it. Hmm. Good thinking. I think mine is somewhere related to dynamic math talk. And I'm going to be thinking some more about how, what an advantage this virtual space that we can all see and move. And I'm going to be, I'm, I just know I'm going to be thinking about that some more. So that wasn't a very concrete takeaway, but yeah. How about you, Dr. Wills, do you have one? So uh, one takeaway that I always get whenever talking about this with other teachers um, and with talking with you all in it is the challenge in learning technology, learning how to use the chat box, learning the dynamic math talk, what, whatever it is, there's challenges there. And you know, as adult learners, how we react to those challenges in front of our students can very much impact the way that they react to productive struggle in mathematics. So if we want them to be calm, to think again, try another way um, and persevere through it, then I think we have a great opportunity right now to showcase the real in the moment times when we're doing that with the technology. And we can calm down and slow down and show them and model how to do that, then they're going to start doing a lot of the same things that we do when they're finding themselves stuck in a word problem. That's really powerful. Yeah, totally had that happen today. It's very convicting. Yeah, <laughs> I totally had that happen today. I was was going to use the little reaction buttons with the thumbs up if they were going to count up in the problem and the thumbs down if they were going to count down. I was so proud of myself. I even got Trip Profit to get out his Chromebook and practice with me to make sure that it was going to work on a Chromebook. And then they couldn't dag on see the buttons. They like just wouldn't appear for the for the for all of them. And I oh man, I was like what and so i i tried to like don't freak out think of another way and they had well, i was like well let's use our real thumbs and so we just yeah. <laughs> we just thumbs up and thumbs down in the camera and it worked you know um i i can't say i stayed super calm in that moment i probably acted annoyed but um good point about how your reaction affects their the the way they think about mistakes and struggles that's great all right well uh, we usually end by saying, "Am I going to see you on a run, Doctor Wills? Do you ever? Are you a runner, walker? <laughs> no, not unless zombies are chasing me. Okay, in which case I will be the fastest sprinter out there. Yes, um, but I am not a runner. I am a walker and a big Pokemon Go fan, so Ooh. I will walk just about anywhere if that means I can catch something awesome. Awesome, That's awesome. Uh, we have um, two people in our house that are well." One one person in our house and one grandma that is very much into Pokemon Go. Yeah. So <laughs> awesome. Ruth, am I going to see you on a run anytime soon or is it just too cold? <laughs> yeah, well, we can try Monday, but okay. we need the weekend off. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye.